thank you so much, Ban. What a what a um, truth statement and something that we need to hear again and again and be reminded of again and again. Who God is, who we are. End of story. Period. That's it. Wow, it's great to be with you this morning, this gorgeous, gorgeous spring morning. I'm James, one of the pastors here at the River Church. And we are in the second week of a three-week series leading up to Good Friday, leading up to Easter Sunday, where we are reflecting upon the cross. We're reflecting upon the cross in, in this series titled like, lives, in, in, lives in the Shadow of the Cross or Living in the Shadow of the Cross. We're reflecting on a truth we find not just a one-off in Scripture once in a while or an exceptional text. We're looking at something that actually permeates so much of our sacred tradition and heritage, and that is the way in which God enters into, utilizes, meets us in our pain. And uh, we started last week um, bringing up Chris and Heidi Iomo sharing their just really amazing, powerful story, really uh, sharing a snippet of it because there's such, such a, a longer, longer narrative to, to hear. And I began with a passage from Mark 10, 35, where Jesus' disciples, James and John, this is as Jesus is heading to the cross in a couple chapters, and they ask him, hey, Jesus, grant us whatever we ask. We want, one of us, we want to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. We want, essentially, full fulfillment. We want to be wholehearted um, in, a, in, in a flourishing state. That's what we desire. And Jesus doesn't critique that, as you might remember. He doesn't say, how dare you ask to be in a great position? Instead, what he asks them is, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? And they're like, sure, I guess. And he's like, okay. And we find out a few chapters later, Jesus is in the garden talking about that cup again. And it was not uh, a Capri Sun or um, like a Diet Coke. This was, this was the cup of suffering. He asked, Je- he asked the Father, Father, take this cup from me. Jesus asks to take that cup of suffering, Lord, Father, take it from me, but not what I will, but what you will. And he enters into the cross and the darkness and the suffering and the abandonment and the betrayal of that place, the worst thing ever he enters into. And, and as the narrative continues, we find out in Mark 15 that suddenly we, we get a sense this was not an arbitrary act of, of imperial Roman violence. This was not a mistake of history where a good person dies in a horrible way. Indeed, the sky goes dark for three hours. The temple veil that it separates the holiest of holies from the holy place, it tears from top to bottom. The centurion, a guy with no theological training to speak of, who's in charge of making sure Jesus' suffering is exactly as the Romans would want it, and making sure Jesus dies, he sees Jesus dying, and he doesn't notice the miracles of Jesus. He's probably not heard much of the teachings of Jesus or the life of this man. Instead, seeing the way Jesus died, crying out in his, in his pain, crying through Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says the centurion, seeing how he died, cries out and affirms, truly this was the Son of God. And the, the theological, um, the, the big fat theological takeaway in this that we are, we are marinating in and reflecting in and savoring these weeks leading up to the cross is the fact that it is indeed so often in suffering where God's greatest work in our life happens. It is, it is in the cauldron of pain. 
And so we've asked um, a number of uh, individuals and and families in our community, if they would be willing to share their story with us um, leading up to the cross. And um, today, I feel like the luckiest individual in the world to be able uh, to stand up here with the privilege of introducing, yet again, another remarkable human being in my life personally, in my wife's life personally, and in this community. And she interrupted me last time, I was saying nice things, and she ran up here and was like, you're done. So no, Janie, you stay there right now. But Janie Calvert, truly, um, you know her if you've been around this community for any length of time. Janie Calvert is the kind of person that you get into her atmosphere, and it's like, oh, the grace is just abounding and pulsating, and, and you, you, your burdens you may come with, you, you sense the presence of Christ. You sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in her life. And you might ask, where did that come from? Like, what, what pills are you taking to bring this about? And, and as you're going to hear, the reality, a lot of vitamin C, but also, no, the reality is, it is not because she's just a wonderful person. That's true. But she has been through the valley of the shadow of death on so many levels. You're going to hear one of those levels today, hear a story of Janie Calvert. And so, Janie, would you, would you come up here and grace us with the story of your life in the shadow of the cross? Thank you. Okay, I've got, I think I'm on. I'm on, right? Yep. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, good morning. I'm very grateful that I can be here with you today. Um, First of all, I want to make it clear that this is my personal experience with cancer. People handle difficulties in all sorts of ways. Um, and I know there's people in this audience that have been affected, either someone you love or you yourself, and your story is your story. This is how it happened for me. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says, For in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps emerging from a phase, but it always reoccurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I'm on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down? This sentiment fits my life during a 10-year span. My family had had some very tough years. There were challenges that had left us with a very different life than the one we had known. Along about the sixth year, I had a routine medical exam and was called back for more tests. If you ever got the call back, you know you don't want the call back. The conclusion was, from the radiologist that looked at even more x-rays, that I was fine. But I should come back in four to six months instead of the usual year. A friend of mine knew a doctor in our area who was really a renowned oncologist. And she said, you know, I think you shouldn't wait. I know someone who waited, and they shouldn't have waited. I want you to go to this person. Go call them right now. It was a Friday, and I called, and he said, come tomorrow. And I took my films, and I went there. And he looked at them, and he said, I think you're fine. And I thought, well, good, now we have two opinions. And he said, I'm not a radiologist, but I'm pretty sure you're okay. It's not 
life-threatening. I don't think it's even cancer-threatening. I don't know what exactly is wrong there, but I think it's something in the skin. It isn't really about cancer. But he said, I'm not a radiologist, so I'd like you to come back on Tuesday and meet my radiologist. So I went. And I like this woman a lot. We have, were having a great time and talking, and she took more pictures, and she said, I think you're fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with you. And I thought, well, this is three people that have now declared I'm fine. So I thought I must be. She said, but you know, I always do three things, and I haven't done the third thing yet. I haven't done an ultrasound. And the ultrasound machine is not as accurate as the x-ray machine, but I think I'll do the ultrasound. So I was pretty confident, and I said, okay. So she got it out, and I watched as she began to find something, and she was marking it, parameters around these places. And I looked at her face, and the color had kind of gone out of her skin. And I finally worked up my courage to say to her, what is that? She said, I'm 99% sure that's invasive carcinoma. I didn't really know for sure what that meant, but I knew it was not good. And somewhere I knew carcinoma meant cancer. When I left that examining room, the people in the office were lined up on either side of the hallway, expressing how sorry they were. I had this experience that day, and I haven't ever had it since, where people were talking, I couldn't hear them. I couldn't hear really anything, and I couldn't understand anything. I had completely shut down, but I got myself out of there, and I went back in a few days. And when I went back, this woman opened the door of the building for me and, and greeted me like she knew me, and I said, hi. And she said, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no, I don't know who you are. She said, I'm the radiologist that found your cancer. I said, really? I said, well, that was rather a miracle because I, I had all these people telling me that I was fine. And she said, yeah, you have no idea. She said, I took your films to a weekend seminar conference with a whole room full of radiologists, and I put them on the screen, and I said, would you have said this woman has cancer? And they all said, no. I said, you know, I think I had a divine appointment, because I really wasn't even going to come, except someone pressed me to do that. And she said, you know, I have small children, two of them, and sometimes I wonder, why, why do I work? Why aren't I just staying home with my children? But she said, that night, after seeing you, I got down on my knees, and I thanked God that I have this job and that I could find your cancer, because it really shouldn't have been found. It would have been found eventually, but much later. I would have been in more trouble. So it seemed I had joined a club I never wanted to be in. I had a series of appointments and surgery was recommended, but they were sure I wouldn't need any follow-up. You can imagine that I was less confident in everybody being so sure. 
But I went forward, I scheduled the surgery, and after I woke up, I was told, no, in fact, you will need chemotherapy. Of course I would. So I had called my mother on the eve of my scheduled surgery, and my brother, my oldest brother, was living with her, and she was older, and I was concerned about her finding this out, but I decided I couldn't go to surgery without telling my mother. So I called her up, and my brother answered the phone. And I said to my brother, hi. And with that, he began to cry. I thought, well, how did he find out? But it wasn't that. It was that he'd been diagnosed with very serious cancer. And he didn't think he was going to live. Well, needless to say, I didn't bring up my cancer. So after surgery, I began my first round of chemotherapy. And for those of you that have ever experienced this, about two weeks after your first round, your hair falls out. And I knew that was coming. I'd been very well prepared to expect it. But I was out shopping, and I was in a dressing room, and I pulled the top off the top of my head, and hair just rained down everywhere. And I, I said to my friend, I got to get out of here. And as I was driving home, or she was driving us home, I said, you know, I'm not just going to wait for this to happen. I got to get in front of this. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, my friend, Tommy Allen, who you guys know, some of you know, had told me that when this comes, you come to my house and I'll shave your head. So I called him and I said, I think I, I, think I need to come over for those clippers. And he said, come on over. So I went down to his house. And for about three hours, we talked about my shaving my head because I couldn't get up the courage to do it. He told me I would look like Sinead O'Connor, who I didn't know who that was. <laughs> but I decided, well, that must be good. And I said, is that a good thing? He said, oh, she's so cool. Okay. So about midnight, he shaved my head. And I went home with his baseball cap on, and that was sort of my look for quite a long time. So my daughter had graduated from college and had come home to live with me for a year because she was going to do graduate work, and she... I was really happy to be home, and I was really happy she was home. And I kind of thought that she could be somebody that would be able to help me, because I was really not sure how this was going to go, because I was afraid of how sick I was going to be. I'm a person who gets <laughs> sick dri driving in the back seat of a car. Everything affects me. I take hardly any kind of a pill because it has such a strong effect, and I was really concerned. But I thought, well, Chrissy will be here, and this will help. She goes out for a run one day on a fire trail behind our house, and she trips on a tree root. And she hears a pop, and these two women were on the trail, and they look at her, and she's pale, and they help her back to our house. And when she came in, I looked at her, and I thought, this isn't good. And she said, I think I need to get an x-ray. So I took her to the emergency room. And as she was laying on the gurney in the emergency room, and I was there with my baseball cap, I thought, we are, we're in trouble. We got a lot going on here. She had broken her hip. And her doctor told her not to put one ounce of weight on her foot. She was to use crutches for everything. She got up in the middle of the night, she used to have her crutches. And I stood there listening to that, and I looked at my son, and I said, I don't know how we're going to do this. He said, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> anyway, that began 
a new stage. And I have to tell you that at this point in our life, it went like that. It was one thing after another. I sometimes didn't know where I was going to get the next breath. I didn't know how we were going to keep going because we had had so much tragedy in our family. So I was really pretty scared about the whole thing. Three weeks into treatment, my brother died. And my doctor advised me not to fly to Washington for his funeral. And he was not an easy person to love. And my sister was up in Washington already, and she called and said, can you tape a eulogy? Because I don't know what to say about him. So I taped my brother's eulogy, and they played it at the funeral, which I thought was a little strange. My mother began to decline over the loss of her son. Effects of chemotherapy are, are difficult for anybody that has lived through that. I was very sick. And cancer takes you down in so many ways. It takes you down physically, mentally, and psychologically. It's a battle that you wage, and you can easily lose hope. You don't have something that you've gotten over before when you have cancer. It's not like the flu, or a cold, or even pneumonia. I'd had pneumonia. I got well. But, but I could look around, and, and in that chemo room, I could see people sitting in those chairs that sometimes they weren't there the next week. So it becomes a really hard reality. You face your mortality. I'd been a runner for many years when this happened, and on good days, I would go to the beach for a run. It was a way for me to feel normal. I saw cancer as my enemy, and it wasn't going to get any more of me than it had already been taken. I saw it as a battle to fight. My doctor told me along about this time that cancer, he'd been told by other patients, is a gift. I couldn't see it. It didn't look like any gift I'd ever had. Each treatment, I got sicker. It accumulates. And I wanted to quit. In fact, at one point I told my doctor, I'm not doing the next round. I was supposed to do four. And there's three weeks between each round. And at the end of the third one, I said, you know, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Because the, the problem is you're really sick the first week, and the second week you start to get a little better, and the third week you have a good week. But then you've got to go do it again. And it got harder and harder. And he said, that's fine. The trial's based on four rounds. Meaning, in other words, the success rate that I've given you, the percentage of chance for your survival is based on four rounds. But if you want to quit... He's very wise, man. If you want to quit, you can quit. Of course, I went back for the fourth round. We were spinning. We were really struggling. We had some great people that came alongside of us and helped us. Food arrived unsolicited. There were cards every day in my mailbox. We had drivers. Chrissy had a driver to take her to school. I had drivers to take me to treatments. Chrissy's friends were amazing. Tommy Allen called me every day for three months. Have you ever tried to call somebody every, every day for three months? Sometimes it would be 9.30 and the phone would ring and I'd know it would be him. How'd you do today? He was a really good friend. One low point, I had been sick all night 
and morning came. And I called my doctor, and I told him my troubles. As long as I could get him to listen, I kept pouring it out. And he listened for a long time, and then he said, get up. I was laying in my bed, and I told him that. I said, I can't get up today. And he said, get up. And it reminded me of the scripture when Jesus says to the paralytic, get up and take your mat and go home. And I thought, you know, if that guy could get up, I can get up. So I got up. But I realized that sometimes getting up feels really, really hard. And standing and walking can feel impossible. Chemo went on from May to August. My mother died that September. I had had three surgeries and was three days out of the last one when my son and my daughter and I flew to Washington for her funeral. I did the eulogy with a bald head and a hat. It was not an easy circumstance. You know, hair is an interesting thing. And as I had none, I got fascinated with the fact, in fact, I'm looking at all of you, your hair grows right out of the top of your head. And when you think about that, it's rather amazing how God made that happen. It starts way in there. I mean, my hair took forever to show. And I kept saying to my doctor, I haven't had chemotherapy for two months, there's no hair. He said, well, it, it's growing. I said, where is it? He said, it's coming. Eventually, it was coming. But it, it became this really big deal. My doctor said that for women, the loss of hair in cancer treatment is almost the hardest part. You know your head gets cold at night? You have no hair on your head? By the way, to all of you bald-headed men, I think you guys look great. <laughs> but for women, it's a different deal. My dad used to say the best day of the week was the day my mother got her hair done, because she was so happy. Bad hair day is a bad thing. So I went back to my job in September with a bald head. I had students that were eight and nine years old, and you know they say the craziest things? An eight or nine year old will tell you exactly what they think. There's no filter. And I would, if you had a crooked tooth, they'd be talking about that crooked tooth, the one that that fixed. No one in that September in that classroom said, why don't you have any hair on your head? Not a single one. So when the year ended, I brought them all up around, and we were talking about the year and the good parts of the year and the hard parts of the year. And I said, why didn't any of you talk about the fact I had no hair? When you came in, I had hair by the spring, but why didn't you talk about that? And they kind of looked at each other, and this little boy raised his hand. He said, we didn't care that you didn't have hair, Mrs. Calvert. That was kind of a moment for me. That spring, I had seen a woman on the playground who had a big hat, and I knew she didn't have any hair, and eventually I made friends with her. And... She said she had been, been in treatment for a long time. She'd been going to the University of Washington. Her doctor was flying her up there because they had a special program. And whenever you hear that, you know that there's a lot of concern because we live in a, a place where there could be really good cancer treatment. But she had something, obviously, that was pretty difficult. And she came to me 
that spring, and she said, you know, I think my girls, she had twin daughters, I think my girls are gonna need you next year, and I think they're gonna need each other. Would you put them both in your classroom? We didn't really ever do that. You didn't put sisters or even cousins sometimes in the same classroom. I didn't really want to do that, if the truth be told. I was trying to get as far away from cancer as I could. I would have experiences even after treatment was over for a long time where I'd feel nauseated if I, if I went anywhere near the building on Pacific Coast Highway where I'd had treatment. And sometimes I'd be near it and not know I was near it and start to feel sick and look around and there it was. So for me to now have these, this woman and her children in my class, I knew I'd be looking at that every day. I also had a woman whose sons, brothers, had been in my class. And I loved, I loved these two boys so much. And she came and said, I have serious cancer. Can you just stay close to my boys? I was like, no. <laughs> no, I can't. I, I, I can't do it. I, I don't, I don't want to be close to cancer. I want to be as far away from cancer. I want to go on a run and be away from it and get away. Well, I was at those brothers' house the, the morning. Their mother died that night, and I was there that morning. And it was awful. And they were so good and so strong. And those little girls' mother died that February of that next school year. And they were so strong and so good. My question was, why did these women die and I lived? They were young moms. They had school-age children. I didn't know then, and I don't know now. But we don't always get the answers that we want. I've had to make peace with not knowing the whys. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has, given, who has been given to us. I saw that in action. God was closer than ever, and I could endure what I never thought was possible. I was clear where my power was coming from. It felt like all I had was God, but he was enough. I love Habakkuk. I love to say that word, Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, because there's something that happens in these verses where things change. Let me read them to you. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines, the product of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there's no cattle in the stalls. I mean, that's bleak. There's nothing to look at here that gives any kind of hope. But the prophet says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the Lord of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, my personal bravery, and my invincible army. He makes my feet 
like hinds feet, and will make me to walk and make progress upon high places. You know, we have places in our life where we're faced with a decision. How are we going to go forward? Even as I prepared this week for this talk, I was plagued with self-doubt, unbelief, so many questions. What did I have to say that could possibly make a difference to anyone? Where was God as I wondered why my arm ached? I had an ache in my arm, and I couldn't figure it out, and I thought, oh, so now I have bone cancer. I was at a decision point where you all go. Am I going to stand for the kingdom and the God that has protected me and provided for me? Or am I going to shrink back a prisoner of my fears and my shortcomings? We all come face to face with these choices. Well, I clung to the truth. You know, there's nothing that separates us from God's love. He abides with us regardless of our outward circumstances. I have never before or since felt closer to God than in the throes of cancer. One of my favorite songs is sung by Tim McGraw, and it's called Live Like You Are Dying. And a man has had a bad diagnosis of some terrible disease. It turned out it wasn't true, but he didn't know that for a week. And his friend says, well, what did you do when you heard the news? He said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became the friend a friend would like to have. In other words, he had a chance to do things differently. And you know, sometimes we don't know how differently we'd live if we really came face to face with knowing about our mortality and that it's sooner than we thought. We don't always get these opportunities to do it differently. So one thing I will leave with you, all of us have chances to reach out to others. And if you aren't seeing them, Ask God to show them to you. In 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 1, there's a passage that speaks about this. I'm, I'm going to read from the Message Bible. All praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. He comes alongside of us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. That was my experience with those two moms. I had an opportunity. I could have told my principal, I can't, I can't be with those children. I can't do it. I'm so glad I didn't do that. You can use your suffering in tangible ways. You know, I see women with no hair on their heads, and I know what that feels like. And I always say, you know, I've had your hairdo. And they look at me and my hair, and, and then we start talking. And I tell them that they'll have hair again, because you really start thinking maybe you never will. 
and it begins a conversation, and they know I know what I'm talking about. So in keeping with our theme, Come With Me, invite someone to come with you, and you come with them. Move into their world, and come alongside if you can. When you have experienced suffering, you have credibility. People believe you, and they know you know what you're talking about. You know, my doctor was right. Cancer was a gift, not one I ever wanted. But God took it, and he used it for good. And every day has become a precious, a precious moment and, and a time to live in the moment you're in. How many of us miss where we are right now? It, became, it became a goal for me. Are there any challenges? Lots of them. Thank you so much, Janie Calvert, for sharing your story and encouraging us so much. And as the, um, the band comes back up and we, we uh, continue to worship, I think it's always so important that we hear these stories and we view these portraits of lives lived in the shadow of the cross uh, in their proper place, which is uh, in the larger story that we, that we live in, uh, begins with a garden and a pristine, um, perfect, beautiful creation uh, meant to foster relationships with humans to humans, God and humans, and, and, and humans and this earth. A place where, where the kinds of suffering and, and pain and darkness uh, is, is not part of the equation. And, and the other end of that big narrative is, is sort of our audacious hope uh, that we read about in Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation, that, that every tear will be wiped away and death shall be no more. And in the meantime, in the midst of it all, we don't have a God that just looks down at our suffering and says, well, you better hold on. Eventually it'll get better, but for right now, it's just going to be a rough go of it. But rather we have a God who enters into that pain profoundly on the cross without question. And then in the darkest hour knows pain and yet even in in the the waiting room to get results the chemo treatment with those kids that are crying because their mommy's gone right he's not he's not abandoned us he's in our pain and he turns these ashes into beauty and even where there is that remainder that we're like i don't know what to do with this pain i have no box to put this in there's no sanitizing this part of my story i don't know what to do with it even still, we hold to that like grand hope that it will not be wasted. Not an ounce of it will be wasted. So thank you for that reminder, Janie. And, and, um, and for those of you that you heard this story today, and there is actually um, a desire to, to enter in with others, and you don't know where to start. Um, the Woodruffs, where are the Woodruffs at? There's Lynn Woodruff right here in the back. Wave your hand, Lynn. Would you wave your hand? Uh, and would you come up here real quick? I'm just going gonna, gonna to pray for, for your ministry, you and Mark's ministry as you come up. And the only reason I'm doing this right here and now is because it is absolutely dovetails with what Janie is sharing. There's a ministry called Bridges to Hope. Bridges to Hope. Uh, you've gotten a little information about it as you came in today. But it's essentially an opportunity to 
tangibly, practically help with those that have deep needs in cancer treatments or debilitating um, uh, diseases where you can come and help uh, those that are caregiving um, in, in tangible, practical ways. You can help emotionally uh, sitting by those that are in suffering that, uh, it's, that, that would enjoy your presence and enjoy a, a conversation or enjoy uh, some peace with you. And then also spiritually, there's through the phone you could be praying. Um, our prayer team could be praying. So there's a lot of information, and, and I'll, I'll have you find Lynn, and there will be also information on the website um, that you can get, know more about this. But if you want to get involved, or you, need, you know you need some of this kind of care, or you know someone who would benefit from it, come, come see Lynn, and, uh, and let's get involved. But I want to pray for this ministry, for Janie's ongoing ministry, and for the ministry of this body where we say, Lord, we trust you with our pain. So God, we, we do, we trust you with our pain. Even as I say that, Lord God, I ask that you continue to incline my heart to believing that, that you are so trustworthy with our pain and you are not ignorant of our pain. And let us be, Lord God, through bridges to hope, through the folks in our network and life and in our prayers, let us be your body. Let us be um, your presence to bless and not shrink back from the darkness, not shrink back from the, the places of pain that we might think like, like we all would say, I don't want to be a part of something that, that might bum me out or might be a, a downer or difficult, but Lord, that we would rather spring forth as you would have us, Lord, to, to be a presence to bless to those around us. Be with uh, uh, Lynn and Mark and all those involved in Bridges to Hope. Jesus ministry profoundly. We love you. We now worship you, knowing you are the God of our, of our healing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.